Hello, everyone. I'm hoping this mic is working. Yes, you can all hear me? Good. Well, let me begin by welcoming you to the LSE for this evening on the opening night of the LSE Festival Beverage 2.0, which is taking place all week, including Saturday, and it's building on activities that are running at LSE for the whole of the year. And throughout this period of time, the aim is to rethink the core ideas of the welfare state for the 21st century and in a global context. So we're picking up the ideas of beverage and we want to take them forward. My name is Jennifer Jackson Priest. I am Associate Professor of Nationalism and Deputy Head of the European Institute here at the LSE. And it was also my pleasure to be a member of this year's Festival Steering Committee. Over the course of the festival, we will be exploring what were famously called the five beverage giants. The giants are identified in the 1947 report, and we have reimagined them for today as the challenges of poverty, health and social care, education and skills, housing and urbanization, and the future of work. But we are also exploring the missing giants, asking which giant issues of our modern day a beverage would prioritize now in addition to the historic concerns of 1947. And that, of course, is the focus of this evening. So tonight, I am delighted to be joined here by my illustrious colleagues. And from the far other side, we have Sam Frankhauser, Nyla Kabir, Richard Layard, Mary Kaldar, and Fawaz Jerjes. And they are here to debate a missing giant. They will speak, in the order that I've mentioned them, on sustainability, equity, isolation, security, and extremism, asking if one of these should be the sixth beverage giant. The topics that they're speaking on, these missing giants, have been chosen by LSE staff, students, and alumni, and now we are putting the choice to the wider public. We are inviting you, after you have heard the discussion tonight, to go online, and now I'm going to read out the website, to lse.ac.uk slash missing giant vote, and you will cast your vote. We will keep on voting through until Wednesday, and the selected final giant will be included in the final festival event on Saturday. Each speaker who speaks tonight will be limited to seven minutes. Um, you will see possibly over there a series of bats going up, so you'll know how they're doing. Um, <laughs> after we have gone through the discussion, we want to put the questions to you and want you to be able to ask our informed experts questions, hopefully to provoke in your mind, which giant ought to receive your vote. This can be done by anyone here in the audience at LSE, but also by anyone watching on live stream, because we are using new technology called Poll Everywhere. So if you want to submit a question at any time, you can go to, and I'm going to read this solely, pollev.com 
dot com slash LSE events quanda. The link is up. It should be up somewhere. There it is. Join in with the event. And there you see the website to use. You can go there via a Poll Everywhere app or simply by typing that address into a web page and then it will automatically take you where you need to go. You can also vote for the questions or comments that you want um, to talk about and indeed your missing giant at the end of the event. Now this is brand new technology. We've never used it at the festival. I've never used it. My fingers and toes are crossed. It works well. But just to practice it, I would like to invite you now to take a couple of minutes. You can get out your phones and your devices and go to the link. There it is. And tell me in a maximum of three words, got to be a bit of a challenge on this, what you think of when you think of the five issues we are debating today. And remember, that is sustainability, equity, isolation, security, or extremism. So for instance, if I were in the audience, I might want to type in climate change. And if you don't have an app with you today, you can of course always ask your neighbor sitting next to you uh, to enter your three words on your behalf. So let's give it a go. Uh, if this all works, we're going to get an interesting word bubble on the big screen, uh, and we'll actually get a sense already of what people are thinking on. Well, I mean, we can already see how the debate is moving forward. I'm watching all of these new words coming up, and they're getting bigger in size. This is exactly how it will work during the question and answer period. So you can use this to ask your questions, and I will then identify the big ones coming up on the list and direct them to my colleagues. Um, we are also, as I should say um, to you now, running, for those of you who are Twitter users, a hashtag for today's event. Our hashtag tonight, should anyone wish to tweet, is hashtag LSE beverage and hashtag LSE festival. And again, this is a lovely way to connect out with the wider public. As a final comment, however, um, I know I've asked you to get all your phones out, but please do make sure that you have turned these to silent. We are recording. We're hoping to have a good recording, and clearly it wouldn't quite be as well uh, recorded if we had interesting beeps and buzzers going off in the audience. So if you can just make sure that they are on silent, um, we will have a good video recording, and you know, do feel free to go and look at this after the event as well. So that's really it from me, and it's now time to turn to my colleagues. I am going to begin, as I said earlier, with Sam Fankhauser, who is the director at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Deputy Director of the ESRC-funded Center for Climate Change Economics and Policy, both at LSE. And he is going to begin with his pitch for, there it is, sustainability. Sam. Okay. Good evening, everybody. So my pitch is for sustainability or perhaps slightly more narrowly environmental protection. This is the main picture I want to show you. Uh, please have a look at it, appreciate it while I talk. It's a picture of our planet from space. It's a beautiful planet, both from that distance, it's beautiful from nearby, it's full of life, it's amazing, it's unique. It's also very fragile. Fragile was one of the first words that popped up on the word vouchers now, and it's the only life support system that we have. 
basically, if we don't look after this planet, those four good people on the panel with me can go home. <laughs> Their problems will not be possible to solve. I'll just pick two, uh, more or less at random, um, equity. Every development specialist in the world will tell you just how inequitable, how unfair environmental problems like climate change are. They destroy livelihoods, they throw people back into poverty, they destroy development progress. Just look at what Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Irma did in the Caribbean last, last autumn. That's the equity story which will become impossible to solve if we don't look after this planet. Security, extremism, let me just say one thing about those two. One of the organizations that is most worried about issues such as climate change is the military. The military, not just in the UK and Europe, but also in the US. Those are not tree huggers. They're hard-nosed professionals. They kill other people for a living. But they are very, very worried about things like climate change because they see it as the security risk that it is. We have a postdoc uh, at Grantham in my institute who found a climate footprint in the French uh, Revolution. Some people say there's a climate footprint uh, in Syria, although that's a lot more controversial. So again, you get a sense as to the, the impacts and risks that we face if we don't look after our planet. But this is the London School of Economics, so I suppose I should give you a few sort of pieces of evidence and statistics. We live in the Anthropocene. Uh, this is the, the epoch where the fate of the planet is shaped not just by nature, but also by human action. And these are seven issues where scientists tell us that we are reaching the sort of the planetary boundaries, or perhaps even have crossed the planetary boundaries. Those are just seven of them. That's the ones I could fit on a screen. screen. There are a couple more. And you don't have to agree with the way these things are measured, but it gives you a bit of a sense just how perilously close we are coming to mess around with the only planet we have. Climate change there on the top, which is the research I do uh, at, at, Grantham research at the Grantham Research Institute. Basically, we have about 25 years' worth of carbon emissions left at current rates. 25 years at current rate, and then the atmosphere is full. I look in the room, and uh, my guess is most of you will still be around in 25 years. So in your lifetime, we're running out of atmosphere. Power stations that we build today will last 40 years rather than the 25 years we still have. Biodiversity, a little bit further down the list. People talk about the sixth mass extinction, extinction that we're going through every 100 million years or so. There's one of those. The ones we're currently going through is man-made. You look at those numbers you see there, and there's about 100, 1,000 times above the natural rate of extinctions. That's what we are currently doing to the planet. <clears throat> Some of these things are linked. Further down there, you have ocean acidification. Combine ocean acidification with climate change, and you get a lethal threat to coral reefs. Coral reefs start dying <coughs> at about one and a half degrees warming. We're currently at one degrees, combined with ocean acidification. What does that do? It kills off a quarter of marine species. A quarter of marine biodiversity is in coral reefs 
we're in the process of killing it. It doesn't have to be that way. We know how to protect the environment. We know how to look after our planet. We have done it in the past. If you look at the history of economics, there's always a, a school of thought that says we're about to run out of something. Uh, Stanley Chevens worried about running out of coal in the 1860s. I wish he'd been right, but he wasn't. Um, in the 1970s, we ran out of resources, the limits to growth. We are usually okay as a, as, as a society to find ways around those constraints. Um, our water quality is a lot better in this country certainly than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, we have found a solution to acid rain. Uh, we are in the process of finding a solution to things like ozone-depleting sus substances, although the ozone layer is not on this list. It's sort of making an unwanted comeback. But we know we have solved environmental problems before. <coughs> Moreover, we have solved them without jeopardizing our prosperity. In the UK, our greenhouse gas emissions are now 40% lower than they were in 1990. GDP is 60% higher. So we can do these things without jeopardizing our, our well-being and, 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 and our wealth and our prosperity. Technical progress can be a wonderful thing. It moves us towards the weightless, more environmentally friendly economy. All that electronic information that you're pinging around on social media, on the internet, if you were to carry all that stuff in the traditional way, it would need several billion horses and an unsustainable amount of hay to feed them. We have technical progress to solve some of those problems. But it needs will, it needs determination, it needs innovation, it needs imagination, it needs leadership, and it needs all of you. Keep that in mind when you do your voting tonight, and more importantly, keep it in mind again tomorrow morning when you wake up. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Um, I would now like to ask Naila Kabir, Professor of Gender and Development at the Department of Gender Studies and the Department of International Development here at LSE to give us her pitch for equity. Okay, um, thank you very much. I am going to be defining my sixth giant uh, as in terms of inequity. And what I mean by inequity is uh, the set of synonyms that go with that concept. It's about lack of fairness, lack of justice, uh, discrimination, bias, and so on. Uh, I'm going to focus quite a lot of my talk, a bit of my talk on the UK, and then talk much more globally. And one of the things I thought when I decided I would talk much more globally is that it seems quite appropriate, because one of the small facts that we found out about Beveridge is that he was born in Rangpur district, which is in what is today's Bangladesh. And I don't think that is a fact that is known to very many people. Uh, let me take as my starting point the proposition that one's circumstances at birth, circumstances that are beyond our control, should not matter for one's chances in life. If they matter, then we have a situation of inequity and injustice. Yet across the world, there are people who are born with socially devalued identities, identities that they have not chosen, but that they cannot discard. Identities that predetermine the kind of endowments they are likely to enjoy and how they are regarded by the rest of society. 
and how they will fare over the course of their lives. Let me illustrate how this works by looking at the five giant evils discussed by Beveridge uh, and how they are distributed in the UK today. When Beveridge was talking about his five evil giants, he was talking about a socially homogenous Britain. Today, Britain is far more pluralistic. About 80% of British people identify as white British. The rest, 20%, are black, Caribbean, African, Asian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, and so on, and then mixed other and uh, various uh, other categories. So if we look at the distribution of these wants, of these uh, evils today, what we find is that systematically, white British households are least likely to be poor. Bangladeshi and Pakistani households are most likely to be poor. As far as ignorance is concerned, we find that there's a strong differentiation by class amongst white students, with better off students doing far better than poorer students, less of a class factor in the other groups. Chinese and Indian students doing very well, Pakistani and Bangladeshi students progressing better than average. Turning then to uh, idleness, or need to work, white and Indian workers most likely to be found in professional occupations and earning higher wages than Pakistani, black, and other ethnic minorities, least skilled work, and the lowest wages and highest levels of unemployment. Moving on then to disease, focusing very much on mental illness, we find that black and minority ethnic groups report higher levels of mental illness. Uh, white British states, patients are more likely to be tried uh, to be treated for these illnesses and to report reasonable outcomes. And finally, squalor, as you might imagine, uh, black minority and Pakistani Bangladeshi people are likely to be found concentrated in the most deprived areas of England. So what we get here is not a story only about identity, because Indians who apparently are drawn from uh, middle classes or are more likely to have migrated from middle-class backgrounds, perhaps East Africa, do reasonably well. What we do have is the intersection of certain identities, racial and ethnic minority identities, intersecting with class disadvantage to produce very durable forms of inequality so that the same families are poor over time, are less likely to perform well in the, in the labor market, and live in the most squalid situations. This intersection of social identity with economic disadvantage is not unique to Britain. It identifies the most excluded sections of the population in countries across the world. Those that experience the most deprivations in whatever way you manage to define deprivation. Those whose life, life chances appear to be most circumscribed from birth. So in India and Nepal, these are people from the lowest castes and indigenous groups. They are the poorest. Their children are, they are least likely to live uh, healthy and uh, extended lives. Their children are least likely to go to school. They are least likely to earn wages that uh, provide a decent living. And they live in the most poorly served areas. We find a similar clustering of disadvantage amongst black Africans in South Africa, Afro-descendants and indigenous groups in Latin America, among indigenous groups in Vietnam and China, and in, uh, amongst black, Hispanic, and Native Americans in the US. 
And time and time again, we find that whatever different measures of disadvantage we have, women from these groups are ranked lowest, whether it's in terms of education, health, earnings, or voice. And of course, there are these gender-specific forms of uh, discrimination and inequity, such as sexual violence, maternal mortality, which further exacerbate their situation. These inequities, these experiences of injustice, have further consequences. So we looked at high levels of mental illness amongst black and minority ethnic groups in the UK. Elsewhere, we find higher levels of depression, alcoholism, and domestic violence, often born out of frustration. These are the, some of the more silent consequences of inequalities and inequities. And then there are the noisy consequences. So we can map the pattern of crime according to the kind of, um, according to the identity and class background of people. Not only who commits the crimes, but also who is most often victim of crimes. And similarly, we can map civil war, riots, ethnic violence, and so on, to precisely these kinds of inequalities. Social exclusion of this kind doesn't necessarily lead to, to uh, civil war and uh, uh, unrest, but it increases its likelihood. So for instance, in India, we have had for a long time low-level insurgency, which affects many of the districts of India. And it isn't necessarily that this districts with the highest numbers of untouchable castes and indigenous minorities are engaging in this kind of insurgency. But it is the case that where this insurgency occurs, there is a high proportion of people from the untouchable castes and ethnic minorities. So I would like to simply argue that we need to have inequity as the sixth giant evil because of the harms that it inflicts on those whose accident of birth has closed them off from opportunities for the harms it inflicts on their sense of self and respect in society. And I would like to argue for it because of the harms that it inflicts on society. Um, any society that is characterized by drug addictions, crimes, and so on, is likely to be a society that is highly fragmented. And if we are all in the business of co-producing a healthy and prosperous society, we have to make sure that every single group in that society has a stake in building it. And for that reason, I think we need to address inequities, and we need to address it by starting at the other end of the income distribution, which is amongst the very wealthy. Thank you, Nella. Next, next, I would like to ask Richard Laird, Emeritus Professor of Economics and Director of the Wellbeing Program at the Center for Economic Performance here at LSE, as well as the author of the origins of happiness, the science of well-being over the life course to give his pitch for isolation. Richard. You can wave the book there if you want. <laughs> ah, there it is. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, so I want to uh, talk about uh, isolation is actually the thing we decided to use as a single word. And um, I think that uh, that is what Beveridge would also have homed in on as his sixth giant uh, had he been alive today. Because I don't know if you know, but Beveridge thought there was only one purpose of government, uh, which was to promote the happiness of the people, and in particular, to reduce the amount of misery. And that was his concept of equity, a very simple one, reduction of misery. So if you look at what is the main cause of misery, uh, other than the five giants, uh, I think 
you can conclude that it's various forms of isolation. So there's isolation due to personal reasons, like mental illness, addiction, family breakup, bereavement. And then there's isolation due to social reasons, excessive competition, separating people one from another, terrible bosses, or cruelty on Facebook. So this is the whole complex of things that are producing uh, the experience of isolation which is causing misery. Now, why did Beveridge not include these sorts of things? Because in his day, uh, people had very little idea how to help people with their personal and relationship problems. And that has totally changed. So Beveridge's five giants, apart from physical health, are basically part of somebody's external world. And it's time that we got down to looking more seriously at the internal world because the sad fact is that in spite of the slaying of most of the five giants, the data show that both in Britain, America, West Germany, people are no happier now than they were back in the 1950s. That is a, a, a terrible a challenge, I think, uh, to us social scientists. Uh, and the reason, of course, is that our personal lives and relationships have not improved in line with the improvement in our material uh, circumstances. So what has happened since Beveridge? We're all much richer, uh, but we've not used our increased wealth uh, to achieve more contentment and a higher uh, quality of human relationships. Instead, actually, we've gone the opposite way. More stress. A society increasingly competitive uh, in education, work, and social media. So schools increasingly exam factories, where only, of course, half the students can score above average. At work, constant ranking of, uh, uh, of team workers uh, for purposes of pay, destroying the fun of working together. Uh, and of course, since Facebook was introduced, uh, the surveys uh, of what proportion of young people saying, I feel left out, skyrocketed. So those are the social things. The internal things are, of course, above all, mental illness. Uh, and while our physical health has been transformed, our mental health has got worse, especially among younger people uh, and students. Uh, one in six adults now suffering from a diagnosable depression or anxiety disorder or addiction. I met, for example, the other day, Gareth, a very good-looking and charming person, 32. For eight years, he had not gone out of his house because he was afraid people would think he was so ugly. And there are thousands, tens of thousands of people not actually able to go out of their houses for these kind of mental health reasons. But of course, we now can deal with these problems. Uh, Gareth is a successful therapist. We've got treatments for social phobia that can cure 80% of people in an average of eight sessions. We've got online version that does uh, equally well. Um, and in fact, for most mental health conditions, we now are in a totally different situation from when Beveridge uh, was alive with over 50% of recovery rates. Now, why do I claim that these factors, these isolation factors, are the key ones for people's happiness? Because of the new science of happiness. Uh, and Beveridge, I think, would have thought it wonderful uh, that uh, at LSE and elsewhere, people were now studying happiness uh, in a direct 
uh, empirical <coughs> way. And I want just to show you uh, what we've discovered about the uh, main sources of misery in our society based on tens of thousands of observations. So we're identifying misery by asking people, uh, overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days? And then we're calling uh, the, those in misery the bottom 10%. So what are the, the factors that are putting people, more people, below that cut-off score uh, uh, at the bottom? Uh, and it's a very, very striking tale. There at the top are four of the five giants. And at the bottom are three aspects of isolation. Mental illness, having no partner, uh, and having unsupportive co-workers. These inner factors, mental illness, and related relationship issues, some of them coming from outside, some of them coming from inside, are crucial, I think if we're honest about ourselves, crucial to our happiness, and at least as important uh, as many of the uh, big five uh, that were already identified. So if you ask me what is the cheapest way to reduce the number of people in misery, which I think is the answer to the equity problem, I would say uh, really to address the problem of mental illness, that's the incredible degree of discrimination uh, against it within the health services throughout the world. We have been able to roll out uh, a much improved service of psychological therapy. It's still not at all perfect. And what is interesting is that we've shown that it saves money uh, and saves more money uh, than it costs. And I don't think you can say that for any of the other giants. So I think Beveridge would have voted for isolation as the next big issue uh, because it causes so much misery and they're so comparatively cheap to tackle. But, of course, we've got other very important problems we're talking about here. Uh, we're going to be talking about security. We've talked about climate change. But what about beverage? Where's beverage in this? Well, let me remind you that in 1942, we were in the middle of the Second World War, and he didn't choose war as one of the five giants because he was looking for giants which could be dealt with within the context of the welfare state. So I think isolation is exactly such a problem that is absolutely ripe for being dealt with within the welfare state. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Next, I would like to ask Mary Caldor, Professor of Global Governance and Director of the Conflict and Civil Society Research Unit in the LSE Department of International Development to give us her pitch for security. Well, I was very pleased to be invited to this event because my father was a lecturer at LSE in the 1940s and he wrote Appendix C of the Second Beverage Report on Employment. Now, in that appendix, he predicted that the war would end in mid-1945, but he was over-optimistic about British economic performance after the war. And later he said, military forecasts, I've concluded, are much easier than economic forecasts. Well, I've spent my life studying the military and security, and I think if that conclusion was true then, it's probably not true anymore. Um, and the reason is, 
uh, that the wars that we witness in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Ukraine, Libya, Congo, Somalia, never seem to have any end. And not only do they never seem to have any end, but they spread. They spread through terrorism and extremism, as we will hear from Fawaz. They spread through refugees. Um, they spread uh, through terrorism. Uh, and they spread through transnational organized crime. Uh, some of you may have been watching Mafia, which really shows you the way in which Russian oligarchs, Mexican drug cartels, Syrian warlords use London for money laundering, both the financial market and the housing market. Military technology has become extremely expensive and extremely destructive, but actually very ineffective at doing what used to be called in military parlance, compellence, in actually as a form of power making people do what you want to do. Uh, and the reason for that is that the difference between expensive, sophisticated technology and the sort of simple homemade devices that have been enormously enhanced through contemporary communications and the like has really narrowed. You know, you can cause mass destruction by flying planes into the Twin Towers in New York. Um, so, a very good example, actually, which maybe Fawaz will talk about, is the coalition war against ISIS. It's been hugely. Some uh, 58, 68 countries are involved in the coalition against ISIS. It's been hugely destructive. It's killed far more people than were actually killed by ISIS. And yet, if you talk to the people on the ground, they feel more upset by the destructiveness of the military than they do by the experience of ISIS. And ISIS is reappearing in the liberated areas. So with this in mind, what I want to argue for is a shift from a war-based international security to a law-based international security. Traditionally, we've made a distinction in security between inside security, which is based on law and justice, and outside security, which is based on war and diplomacy and protecting our country against threats from other states. I think nowadays in this globalized world, we need to spread the inside outside, otherwise the opposite will happen, the outside coming in. I use the term human security. I think we need a shift from national security to human security. Traditionally, human security has been defined as the security of the individual and the communities in which they live, and also as both physical and material security, uh, freedom from want and freedom from fear. But what I like to do is to think that we live in, if we live in rights-based, law-governed societies, we take human security for granted. When there's some crisis, a terrorist attack, a Grenfell Towers, we expect there to be ambulances, firefighters, police ready to come to our aid. What I'm talking about is really 
spreading that kind of law-based international order globally. And I think it's the only way to bring security to, at a national level. Otherwise, we will suffer from insecurity in the rest of the world. So our external security, if we're nation states, needs to shift from defending ourselves against an attack by a foreign state towards contributing to international security. In terms of apparatus, instead of military, we have, would have a combination of peacekeepers, police, aid givers, health workers, and so on that could contribute to United Nations or European Union collective forces. Now, it's worth noting that this kind of approach became much more important after the end of the Cold War in the 1990s, and it was associated with a decline in the numbers of, war, uh, of wars. Uh, with the war on terror and the return of geopolitics, uh, we're seeing an increase in worldwide insecurity, and this is what I think needs to be reversed. So finally, why is this to be prioritized over the other giants that are hugely important, climate change, inequity, isolation? My key point is that security is embedded in our institutions. Security is key to institutions. We trust our institutions if, we keep, if they keep us safe. And what we need to be able to address the other giants is a new set of in effective international institutions as well as our uh, national and local institutions. Military force was classically associated with nation states. War made the state and the state made war, said Charles Tilly very famously. We think of nationalism as associated with battles, the history of battles and military parades. The new type of security I'm talking about is associated with international institutions, the United Nations, the European Union, the African Union. Um, we used to think during the Cold War, sorry, I'll just be very quick, that the worst possible thing that could happen was another world war. Now that kind of thinking, it's not gone, but it seems sort of anachronistic. It fails. These enormous armed dinosaurs, aircraft carriers, <laughs> nuclear submarines seem absolutely irrelevant in the face of growing insecurity that we face every day from these kinds of wars I mentioned. And those kinds of wars, as both Nyla and Sam said, are actually the consequence of climate change, of inequality, of extremism. So unless you can address this, you won't be able to address all the other giants. So my argument is we need a different kind of security to produce a set of institutions that can address all the giants. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Finally, I would like to invite Fawaz Jerjes, Professor of International Relations at LSE and holder of the Emeritus Professorship in Contemporary Middle East Studies to tell us why extremism should be beverages six. Good giant. evening. Uh, I want to make the case for extremism tonight. Uh, and I want uh, to make five points in my seven minutes. Uh, so please forgive me 
if I simplify. Uh, let me start uh, first by saying, and I'm here, I'm not exaggerating, we live in an age of extremism. We live in an age of extremism. While the dominant media narrative, as you know, uh, focuses on extremism of al-Qaeda variety, of ISIS variety, of like-minded groups and cells, I don't think we pay enough attention to the re-emergence and spread of extremist ideologies in the heart of Europe, in the heart of the West and beyond. Whoever imagined that new fascists and Nazis would rear their ugly head in Germany and Italy of all European countries. Uh, you have extremist ideologies, extremist movements now, whether you're talking about authoritarian populism or you're talking about five, five right, uh, far-right uh, groups, basically they are spreading near and far. Um, supremacist movements uh, have basically feel emboldened in the UK and in the United States. Authoritarian populism and far-right far movements have gained power in some Eastern uh, European countries. Uh, and this is not just uh, in Europe, but worldwide. I don't have the time to really flesh out how this particular phenomenon is spreading near and far. Uh, my second point is that the question is not whether we live in an extremist age. The question is whether we live in a revolutionary moment, moment similar to that of the 1920s and 1930s. And you all know what happened in the 1920s and 30s and the consequences of the rise of extremism and totalitarianism. Yes, for now, the center has held. The middle ground has held. We know that elections in France, in Germany, in Holland, basically there is a solid majority of people who basically still support open society and liberal uh, democracy and reject uh, extremist movements. Uh, but the reality is, and this is my third point, I think we cannot afford to be complacent. I think we cannot afford to do so at our own peril. And this is why I want to explain why we need to prioritize the phenomenon of extremism. Why extremism is important. Uh, Sam talked about his physical planet. Uh, it's very important, of course, the physical planet and the environment and the climate change. But these extremist movements threaten the well-being. They pollute the uh, planet. They threaten, I mean, their major implications. What do extremist movements want to do? Not just for talking about ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Of course, ISIS wants to take Arabic and Islamic societies to 7th century Arabia. It wants to create religious totalitarianism. But extremist movements, whether we're talking about far-right movement or authoritarian popularism or whatever, they want to hammer a deadly nail in the coffin of the Western idea. The idea of liberal society, the idea of open society, the idea of cultural diversity, the idea, the very idea of tolerance. And this goes to the very heart of the normative set of values that we all subscribe to, and we all hold the planet very dear because of that. Uh, not only we need to care a great deal about extremism, because of the ideological ambitious agenda these uh, extremist movements have. I would argue to you 
that the spread and expansion of extremist movement, not just in Europe and the West, but worldwide, basically could provide, could trigger political violence and terrorism. Uh, and of course, we can talk about that during the question and answer session, the difference between the Middle East and Western societies. The reason why you have ISIS and Al-Qaeda, basically uh, uh, the spectacular rise of ISIS because of the breakdown of institutions. Because as, as uh, uh, Mary said, I mean, security does not exist. Even though um, ISIS has been whipped militarily, the reality is, is still a major factor because the lack of, there are multiple insecurities, <coughs> multiple vacuums, institutional vacuums, security vacuums, inequities, and, and, and uh, what have you. How do we explain the drivers? Again, to come back to, uh, I mean, I think, as Naila said, if there is one particular driver that explains the reemergence of extremist ideologies and movement, it would be a severe socioeconomic crisis in the you know, capitalist system today. Social inequities, economic inequities. Last year, Oxfam, at the risk of exaggeration and simplification, last year, Oxfam International produced a report, a report called, I mean, the economy for the 99%. 44 individuals in the world owe half of the wealth of humanity. 44 individuals. 82% of the wealth generated last year went to the richest 1%. We're talking about the reason why extremist movement basically are spreading and emerging worldwide, resentment, anger against the system, against the global elite, against the mainstream political parties, and you have far-right groups and you have extremist groups who manipulate and exploit the resentment and frustration in order to get elected. And also I need to mention uh, the fact that the question of immigrants uh, and demographic changes in demographies have also impacted the social and political landscape. Again, extremist movements manipulate and exploit the question of immigrants and uh, uh, changing demographics in order to get elected. What's to be done? Uh, again, I would argue that if we are correct about the drivers behind the rise of extremist ideologies, we need to nourish democratic movement. We need to tackle the root causes of the social inequities that exist in the international system, the rupture that has taken place between the global elite and societies and between the mainstream political parties and the electorate. We need to fix the tax system. We need an effective health system. We need also, I mean, and, and the final point, just a, a uh, what we need to keep in mind is that, uh, uh, that the reality is, at the end of the day, we need a livable minimal wage. We need to a political and economic, progressive political and economic vision that takes care of the root causes of extremism, which is social and political and economic inequities. Thank you. Well, we've heard five compelling pitches about some very important giant issues of our time. I would now like to hear your questions, or rather see them, on the big screen. Um, as frequently happens when academics are passionate about their topics, we've gone a little over time. Uh, but to compensate, I'm also going to go a little over time for you as well. The reward will be a lovely drink and more conversation afterwards, so I think we'll run over by about 10 minutes, to try and give 
kind of widest conversation to the most of these questions, what I would like to do, and I know my panelists are busy turning their heads, um, I really want to capture the last big four questions that have been flagged up top. I'm going to name them, and I would like to invite all of the speakers to give their final concluding thoughts in response to all of these. Um, you may be asking why just one. I think it's very difficult to choose clearly. We want to impose this choice upon you in part to underscore the urgency of the issues, but also, of course, to really bring home to all of you and to our audience listening elsewhere the reality of hard decisions that policymakers must make when they have finite resources, they have to allocate priorities, and in part it's that decision-making process we really want to interrogate through the festival week. So hard choices must be made. Big questions to our panelists. If we were replacing one of the existing giants rather than adding a six, which would the panel remove? Seven votes for this hot topic. How do we address these global giants through our primarily national political system? Six votes, big one. Are not sustainability, isolation, equality, and security linked to increased population? And then finally, um, what was revolutionary about beverage giants was that for the first time it was the state's responsibility to solve these evils. What about the sixth giant? I presume that means this is also the first opportunity for states to solve it. Shall we go in the similar order, speaking order? Absolutely, Sam. <laughs> Very briefly, and I have my giant to remind you when it's time to move on. It's my last little giant. There he is. The uh, yeah, I don't think I'm going to answer all of them before that giant <laughs> goes up. But let me let me uh, uh, pick and choose. You know, if I go first, I pick mine, and you have the ones that are left. <laughs> um, the the question about national, uh, how do national systems solve those problems? The answer is they're not. Uh, certainly, it's sustainability, but I suspect most of the other challenges here in front of you are global problems. They need global cooperation. They need coordination to solve. And that doesn't just mean cooperation and coordination between nation states. It means also going down in the sort of the hierarchy of governance. It needs uh, contributions from subnational entities. It needs contribution from cities and regions. It needs contributions from the private sector, contributions from civil society. In the case of sustainability, something we're so very alert to at the moment is the contribution of, of the courts. There's a lot of talk about litigation, about the environmental problem, taking governments to court for not protecting their population against environmental harm. So again, it's a, a comprehensive set of the entire governance system that has to look after these things. On population, um, you just sort of look at the the numbers, uh, you know, environmental pressure in a sense is the combination of people times the consumption per capita of those people times the environmental footprint of that consumption. And you just think which one of those three factors is easier to reduce. And it's the environmental footprint of consumption and quite possibly with some limitations, the type and the amount of consumption we have. It's not population. That's much more difficult. Thank you. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to address those questions as well. And I think it isn't 
you know, the, the rise in inequalities today, and I've really looked at a particular example of that rise, <coughs> is very much linked to a very a global system. So I think the idea that we can address this, you know, escalating inequalities without addressing the way in which the global system uh, permits, you know, the movements of capital, permits tax havens, permits all the kinds of areas in which we need to intervene in order to curtail inequality at the local level, I think today it's not possible to think only in national terms. And similarly, I, I wanted to address the question about are these problems linked to population? Again, if we go back to the issue of inequality, I think what has been so asymmetrical about questions of environment, etc., is that a great deal of the problems of environmental degradation have been about forms of overconsumption, unsustainable forms of consumption, which are associated with affluence and wealth. Population has been growing, but I do not see that the main footprints are coming from the poorer end of the population um, you know, distribution. So it seems to me that a lot of the problems that we're seeing today are about a very imbalanced economic system rather than necessarily to do with population growth or anything along those lines. Thank you. Richard. Yes, I, I, I thought the question about um, beverage, thinking that these problems were ones that the state should deal with, was a very important one, and it's a very important issue. What do we think the state um, can do? Um, I, before 1870 or so, we basically thought it could defend us. There wasn't and maintain the law and order, and there wasn't much else. From 1870, we thought the state could um, help people to become productive producers of output. Then we got round to better forms of income maintenance. <coughs> and I think we're now going to move into a situation where we think much more about the, the state as um, helping people have skills not only as uh, producers, um, but as... Uh, as people, <laughs> living their lives in relationships with people. Um, there are things that can be done and taught um, which never could be before, and people are desperately crying out for these things. So I think that that is a new role for the state. Um, I wanted to say something, which hasn't been mentioned actually, the responsibilities of academia. It's been assumed that politicians have to solve all these problems. I think that the, the position with climate change, which I've spent some time on in recent years, um, is an absolute disgrace uh, 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 in, in terms of the neglect by academia. Completely scandalous. Uh, something like 5% of the whole uh, world's um, research budget, uh, less than 5%, goes on clean energy research. Uh, this is incredible when the survival of the planet is at stake. But all that, what they're doing, they're sending probes to Mars, uh, they're investigating um, all kinds of interesting properties and materials that will doubtless produce a better phone and so on. Uh, all kinds of things are being allowed to be pursued because that's what people have always done and that's what they want to do next. Uh, it is unbelievable that the scientific community of the world has not insisted that the top research priority uh, for science is to get cheap, clean energy. Uh, and I hope 
that we're beginning to get this uh, through various international uh, uh, institutions, including uh, Mission Innovation, which you've probably none of you heard of, which is perhaps the most important thing uh, that is happening in climate change at the moment. Um, and of course, if, if clean energy became cheaper than dirty energy, uh, <coughs> it would have solved the problem. So uh, let, let's think also of our role as academics. Thank you. Mary. I very much agree with that. And it seems to me there's a sort of consensus around us about not necessarily state's responsibility, but about public responsibility. That's what, in a way, all the questions are about. It seems to me, if I take the first question, I wouldn't want to replace any of Beveridge's giants. But what I'd say is what's different now than, was diff than the 1940s was that in the 1940s, you could imagine the state solving these problems. Mm. And now we can't. Mm. And if I take the question on the links between sustainability, isolation, I think the problem, it may, there may be a correlation with increased population, but the basic problem is there's no global public responsibility for any of these things. And the basic thing that links it is the fact that private interests, whether it's in developing new materials or going to Mars or um, uh, fracking or whatever, mm takes precedence over the public interest. So absolutely key, and of course the final question, are our national political systems adequate? No, they're not adequate. And when we try to do things in national ways, they backfire and make things worse. When we try to defend ourselves against some foreign threat with weapons, we just make the threat bigger. When we try to close our borders to refugees, we just have them dying in the Mediterranean. Uh, so unless we can build global institutions, which are also linked to local institutions, because I think one of the problems that we, a very major problem we face at the moment is the erosion of democracy. And part of the reason for the erosion of democracy is that our states don't actually make the decisions that affect our lives. They're made in the headquarters of multinational corporations, on the laptops of financial whiz kids, their climate change. And so actually we can't take those decisions, but if we had effective global institutions that protected the local level from these international or global phenomena, then we could have greater democracy at local level. So that brings me back to my point about security, which is that I think if we want to build global institutions, we really do need a shift from a war-based system of security to a law-based system of security, and that provides a basis for addressing the giants today. Thank you, Mary. Fabas. What really, what's fascinating about the question itself, the second question in particular, whether we can address the global giants through our primarily uh, national political system, is that what we are seeing now is retrenchment on the part of the great powers. In fact, whether in the United States or in the UK, they're saying, no, we're not going to deal globally. We want to deal with it on a national level. And this is part of clannish nationalism and the rise of populism. 
which is at the, in fact, now the very idea of interdependence, most of us, as you know, in the 1960s and 70s and 80s and 19, we believe that the international system is interdependence, that global trade, uh, the environment, that somehow the system is interconnected. What you have now really is a kind of a revolt against these ideas. You're seeing the United States saying, me alone. America first, America first, and America last. Even the UK, whoever believed that the UK really, I mean, I, it's not a, even the UK is saying that I want to come home. I want to really deal with the global issues at home. And this tells you a great deal, I mean, the erosion of democracy and the rise, to come back to my own giant issue, the rise of extremist ideologies and movement, which are really making a major impact against the global, against the international, and for the insular, for the insular clannish nationalism uh, that's really sweeping many parts of the world, including the United States and India and Turkey and the Philippines and the UK uh, and on and on and on. Also in the interest of time, I mean, I, I think I want to come back to the question of, of the, the capitalism um, and, and economic, uh, basically, globalization that has really generated massive amounts of wealth in the past 30 years but it has failed to live up to its promise in terms of equity, in terms of distribution of resources. And back at the, again, you cannot, to make a final plea, you cannot deal with either the planet or security or extremism without dealing really with the international system that has basically ravaged many lands in the West and the international system as well. Thank you very much. Um, I obviously want to thank our excellent speakers, but before I do, I want to say to all of you, how important this vote is. I mean, it's going to be one of the most interesting outcomes of the research festival to pick the sixth giant. So I do hope that you will visit lse.ac.uk slash missing giant vote. Um, you will also find there some short videos of other LSE colleagues speaking on the issue from different perspectives. We will be announcing the winner online on Wednesday, and the final giant will be included in the final event on Saturday. Um, I also wanted to point out to all of you how much that the old giants featured in the shadows of our new possible giants. You can see, of course, in a lot of the conversation, the continued challenges of poverty and health and social care and education, skills, housing, urbanization, the future of work. So again, this tells us, I think very importantly, the urgency of the conversation we're having this week. And I do hope you will come back and you will continue to engage in that conversation. You'll tell all your friends, you'll tweet about it. Um, it's exciting and we really do want to share that with all of you. So it's my final responsibility to thank our wonderful speakers, to invite our wonderful audience to join us for a drink and really simply to say, very interesting, very well done. <laughs>